Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about what does a good physiotherapist look like. Now, I'm sure many of you have been along to physiotherapists or physical therapists wherever you are in the world and have received different types of care. How do you know which is better? This week, we talk about that important aspect of osteoarthritis management. We know that physiotherapists can play an important role in osteoarthritis management. And a good physiotherapist can aid in the reduction of symptoms. However, one ongoing and important issue is the problem of variation in healthcare. More specifically, distribution and promulgation of low-value healthcare, which are treatments that broadly encompass passive modalities such as interferential current, ultrasound, unnecessary imaging, use of K-tape, we could go on. This is in favor of higher value treatments, such as promulgation of strengthening exercise or increasing physical activity. Low value care can often lead to treatments that provide little to no benefit or harm to patients or occur in the context of a treatment where you lose the opportunity for another type of treatment, what we might call an opportunity cost. 
On today's episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Jack Chu to discuss high value and low value care in the field of physiotherapy, and specifically what a good physiotherapist might look like, but probably more importantly, what can be done to move the health system in the direction of better quality. A quick warning, the episode goes on for a little bit longer than our typical episode, but I really think some of the content is very helpful to the audience out there who are trying to access better value care and reduce the variation in care that is necessarily occurring in our community. For our guest, Jack Chu is the founder of Chu's Health, which he founded in 2013 as a company for his clinical consultancy, offering second opinions to local sports clubs and teams whose therapists and coaches were struggling to mastermind the recovery of some of their key athletes. As his philosophy and methods spread across the physio profession and the musculoskeletal industry, a consultancy network emerged and eventually Choose Health Services were sought and after enough to need a bespoke facility. Alongside his role as the Managing Director of Choose Health, Jack hosts the Physio Matters podcast, a monthly show which goes out to over 20,000 therapists. And he's also the Director of MSK Reform, a nonprofit think tank which is tasked with improving the industry to reduce unjust variations in care standards. Jack, thanks so much for coming along. Great to have a chance to chat to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, it should be good fun. Now, the usual thing that I start with the show is just giving the chance of the, for the listeners to get a chance to know you a little bit better. But usually it's a selfish thing on my part. It's me just interrogating you a little bit about yourself. But can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like for you? Yeah, I'm a physiotherapist by background and training. However, quite quickly into my career, I started to flex my entrepreneurial muscles, really, and started to try to create some bespoke solutions to some of the challenges that I felt like we were facing in our industry. One of the ways in which I felt I could do that most swiftly was through creative entrepreneurship, in a sense that then you're kind of not, not hamstrung by the system quite as much. But I did, I did serve out my career within the NHS, which I, I'm, I'm hoping is not completely over, but essentially in the UK, I worked at least part-time until relatively recently uh, to a senior, very, fairly senior position in advanced practice in the UK as an MSK clinician, but alongside running uh, several private enterprises, including a private practice, which then grew enough to need me full time, a popular podcast that we got into at the right time in 2013, 2014, back when Ricky Gervais had just sort of taken off with the medium, meaning that we were one of the early physio podcasts out there, uh, which means that then we've kind of been able to hold a listenership by doing monthly broadcasts, now weekly broadcasts on there. We run educational events under that banner as well. Physio Matters runs a conference called Therapy Live, which is a large virtual conference. And then I also, in part because those aren't really the appropriate way to make policy level, system level changes, uh, we set up a nonprofit that operates as a think tank in the UK, floating reformative policy and MSK practice that would change things on, say, a governance and education and influence level, um, working with the media and the like to try and raise standards that way. So uh, a few different feathers in my cap for that. Uh, but I think that's how I like it, really. It seems a, a portfolio career has emerged because I suppose I, I get attracted to the new shiny thing, the new shiny idea, and I try to consolidate it towards this macro vision of raising standards in MSK practice yeah brilliant it's a great great motivation within those shiny new hats which of those do you enjoy the most 
Oof, that's a good question. I feel like I've got to I've got to indulge some of the critique that I receive and say that I do like the sound of my own voice and therefore the broadcasting element of it clearly is something that's so central to it that I must enjoy that most. But to be honest, now it's only I only get chance now to do an afternoon clinical a week, and so that is such a interesting novelty these days that that really is the center of the bullseye still for me is to try and help people with their painful conditions. Yeah, it's a, it's a great career and one I hope you continue to pour all of your effort and energy into. Now, when, you, when you're not obviously shining those brand new hats, what do you like to do outside of work? So we have identical twin boys, 17 months old now, uh, that were born just pre-pandemic. And so they certainly keep us busy. Those are affectionately known on social media as test and control, for which, of course, I, I enjoy not just at raising them, but also then uh, running what, what mock experiments uh, of their lives. Um, I also, although less less and less, unfortunately, these days, but I'm, I'm into adventure sports, anything sideways. I ride boards of all flavors, downhills at fast speeds, uh, competed internationally as a mountain border in my youth and so i try and keep that up and, and race those downhills as fast as i can uh there's a bit of diy more these days is a bit more of a hobby to try and bridge the gap between family and, and hobbies and you're still physically intact with all of the the sports you've undertaken just about i think one of the things that kind of helped me a bit though because i've had unfortunately uh, throughout my life, I've experienced various different injuries, and and uh, and so that's been an interesting reflection to be the other side of, of of the surgical knife, the other side of the therapy suite. So uh, that has helped, but I'm just about intact, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, uh, physically at least, right? But um, that's right, yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Yeah, you sent me this one ahead of time, and I'm not known for brevity, David. Right, so this was worrisome. Go, go ahead, lash out. I've gone for loud critic of bad ideas. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good description. And it sounds like it's probably something, something that you uh, get a chance to do on a regular basis too. Is that right? Through the various hats that you wear? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it feels, it feels a bit, 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 bit negative, but you only gave me five words. So yeah, the next ones would be proponent of good ones, but yeah. Well, this isn't meant to be a critique at all, but a lot of my friends from the UK are not big on short sentences. I think they like to explain things in much longer verse than, than most other people around the world. <laughs> That's certainly it. Yeah. Yeah. Thorough if we're being kind, verbose if we're not. Exactly. Now, the main content of what I want to get through today or into rather today is, is really talking about obviously in your background as a physio, but particularly as it relates to care for people that have osteoarthritis the difference between high and low value care. Uh, now, obviously, physiotherapy is such a critical health professional engaged in the care for people that have osteoarthritis, but not infrequently, we know that care isn't necessarily given according to what is best evidence and in the best interest of the patient. So Jack, in the first instance, can you just give us a little bit of a background as to what high value physio care might look like? Yeah, absolutely. Straight away, it becomes then certainly my opinion based on my reading of the evidence and, and, and evidence-informed practice as it then relates and translates into practice. For me, it's a thorough patient-centered analysis of the case. And that is considering all variables, biopsychosocial and beyond. You know, you're just understanding someone that's sat in front of you and what are the various different factors affecting them, affecting their lives that might be contributing to their situation which in this instance, they're usually presented to you with uh, pain, painful and, and or stiff joints. And 
in that instance, that thoroughness is something that we just can't take for granted as to being a real centre of what differentiates high and low value because the thoroughness of that that diagnostic process, but it's probably not the best word for it, that analysis I've said before, evaluation, the thoroughness of that brings with it then the accuracy of any treatment and management plan. It brings with it the accuracy of prognosis. For me, is something that the, the time needs to be spent on that. And the difference there in high value would be that you're you're not jumping to conclusions as to what that looks like without that without getting all the cards on the table. It's a metaphor that I overuse, but it's certainly one that I'm passionate about, both in terms of sort of the conversational liberalism I bring as a broadcaster, but then also just in patient terms, those conversations aren't dissimilar for me. It's like, what are the factors affecting this case? And that for me in that early stage in that subjective history taking is, is central. And then when it comes to then the management of things and treatment of things, it's then this tailored individualized solutions that are relevant to that person based on their own sense of what they're trying to achieve, their own goals, their own sense of self, how compatible that is with their lifestyle is what I consider to be high value care. And, and, and that for me, although is vague, is far better than for us to infer that I could, I could have just read, of course, something like NICE guidelines or other guidance documents the world over that would then describe what has been shown in various different trials, even well-integrated guidance that, that then bullet point yes and no's or do and don'ts. And, and for me, although vague, you can differentiate clinicians and clinical care by those two things thorough analysis considering all factors followed by a tailored person-centered functional solution and and for me that is good rehabilitation-centered physiotherapy practice and in that just unpacking that a little bit more jack but what are the cues that you think are often missed in that thorough evaluation that you find helpful and meaningful or appropriate evaluation of the patient that sits in front of you it's definitely the the things that bother the patient most are the things that aren't necessarily at the tip of their tongue, really. There's a social obligation sometimes for them to sit in front of you and tell you what they expect you want to hear. Um, and they can't help but then sometimes they're the ones that, that put their blinkers on, say they're, they're knee hip or otherwise. And so trying to get them to be sort of function orientated and tell you what they're struggling to do and that they'd like to do, getting them to hark back to what they what they used to do with their bodies, what they'd aspire to like to do with their bodies, but also some of the social and, and psychological factors affecting them with regards to confidence, with regards to uh, trying to elicit, you know, whether or not are your knees, are your knees making a racket? Are they making a creaking and cracking? What do you know of that? What do you understand of it? Like what's, what's your take on that? Why is it that you sit down like that? You know, if they've just sat in front of you, you know, why, why did you, why do you carry yourself that way? You won't necessarily always phrase it that way, but you're trying to tease out some of those other factors that might affect, affect them that they might not have considered within your even remit or scope, or that they might not think, oh, I didn't think you'd be bothered about that. I didn't think you'd be bothered about the various things that are troubling me that are stopping me sleeping. Well, we, of course, know that the way that that might affect systemic inflammation and, and the like is such that you really do care about those things. And so giving them that space to do so uh, and giving them that, that conversation that then doesn't feel as much like an assessment as that maybe they were expecting, because I really am bothered about what breed of dog you are, because it depends how much it needs walking and your obligations to said pet and your love for said pet probably does matter to me, both in terms of how this is affecting your pain in terms of your social obligation to pet and otherwise, but then also how we can use that as a rehab tool, you know? So I know it sounds funny and the detail is different 
to person to person. But those sorts of things for me are, are central to a good assessment. Yeah, and within those cues, are there common cues that you pick up that inform the rehab tools that you might subsequently use that help to personalize the, the interventions that you might choose from a management perspective? Yeah, yeah, to pick one. If you're starting to notice any sort of signs of any fear avoidance behaviors or for that, if that does seem to be the biggest fish to fry is that there's a, there's a sort of fear of movement more than there is a lack of movement. You know, this is a joint that otherwise moves fairly well and it's got a decent capacity for, for want of a more a specific term. You know, it's something that technically you put it under, under load in various different circumstances and it's not especially grumpy, especially irritable, but there's a, a brace in a garden and therefore often coupled with a perception of fragility that then isn't necessarily demonstrated that radiographically, clinically, various different things there. There's a, there's a sort of mismatch there that, that means that it's that sort of thing that would so direct your rehab, including on the specificity. So your dosage of your rehab, your exercise or your walking program or whatever it might be that you've decided is a smart plan for this person is going to be really intimately affected by that rather than if they weren't necessarily demonstrating those those factors there wasn't necessarily those fear avoidant behaviors the pain still significant but you might be needing to or wanting to be a bit more dose specific on your squat regimen or or things like that that you don't want to you know and, and you can make the mistake then if they don't have those concerns and you therefore cookie cut a reassuring model of of really gentle graded rehab where you're where you're offering lots of supportive reassurance that, that might be pandering and coddling in such a way that would be sort of very socially inappropriate and so those are the sorts of things where as one example of how what what might emerge from a subjective history taking of the thoroughness i'm describing that would then indicate two quite different routes even though that the, the nuts and bolts of it might look similar but the the sort of dosage how involved you are how much they might need you both you know in person in a, in a world of integrated virtual care there's different circumstances then as to how much you might need to see that person in person um so i hope that answers your question you yeah, know brilliant and uh, I, mean, I, I guess it extends us a little bit further in terms of that virtual care methodology that you're referring to there because i think a lot of the time and again you may have your own perspective on this and i'd, I'd welcome that it seems like there's a very codependent relationship that gets set up uh, whereby a health professional creates an expectation that they need to come back two, three times a week for uh, episodes of care that, you know, I guess for some people they may absolutely need, but from a recipe perspective, potentially could be done using alternate methodologies. What are your thoughts on creating that dependent relationship and I guess setting up an expectation on the part of the patient that they need to come back on, on a regular basis and not necessarily handle it in a different way? whether that be through remote delivery of care or giving the person the tools themselves that they can continue to develop their own management skills. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point and, and topic anyway, but certainly in light of the pandemic and a proliferation of virtual consults, it's something that we need to be giving a lot of thought to. I make a point of differentiating a certain small percentage in healthcare that might be say charlatans and very business centric and therefore they've got other motivations including some fraudulent behaviors that might mean that they're trying to develop a codependence as a, as a means of inf implying things that even they know to not be true incredibly rare but still out there but there's a there's a crisp line then between them and those that are otherwise just misguided in what their perception is as to what they can do with their bare hands what they can do with their devices what they can do with their injections what they can do with even their exercise-based modalities 
uh, that therefore means that there is a specificity, a je ne sais quoi, that only they can do in person with, the, with hands-on. And so the mechanisms at play matter greatly for a true understanding of how this care is delivered. And if you can become rehabilitation-focused, rehab-centric is sometimes the language I would use, whereby you're sort of helping someone scale their function from where they are, which would be a thorough analysis, considering all of their personal factors, to where they want to get to, based again on their individualized goal. Good quality care would be helping them to rehabilitate between those two points is something that, dependent on the circumstances you find on assessment, there's no reason why, especially in osteoarthritic care, as to why some portion of that couldn't be delivered through virtual guidance or more than an arm's length distance between you and that person. And we know the, the significant benefits that come from us detaching some of the care delivery from geography and the, the patient choice factors that can come from that and the access that that can bring. And that is with some decent evidence in the UK, even from phone calls. It's not even just the proliferation of Zoom, Skype, et cetera. We, we know that even um, people used to think it was just telephone triage. It's like, well, no, integrated care, whereby when that relationship especially is established, it's, it's shown to be a, a really good way of patients not feeling that that codependence gets developed and that they feel empowered to actually manage their own condition, which let's be honest, is of course where we need to get to. It's the only sustainable healthcare model is one of which we can not create a sense that healthcare gets done to people. It's, a, it's a, something that they, they own, they need guidance and support with, but fundamentally phasing people into a, a supported self-management approach is of course central to any sensible care, especially for something like osteoarthritis. Yeah, brilliant. And I mean, obviously, we'll get into the low value piece in a second. But are there other key features that you see of quality delivery of care that a physiotherapist should be providing to patients out there with osteoarthritis before we get into the lower value pieces? Yeah, if I had to think categorically for a second in terms of interventions that you could group, then it'd be very disappointing if the therapist wasn't considering and integrating in the most part strength training, for example, of the lower limb, like load based and weight-bearing strength training uh, be very strange. Not always, and that's why it comes with that slight hedge, but as a general rule, then yes, that's what you would be looking for, is someone that is then looking at scaling. It's that, that vague term again of capacity, you know, scaling someone's ability to tolerate whatever forces it is that they're asking of their body and then aspiring to that. I would say as well, increasingly, that um, sometimes the, the dishing out squats, deadlifts and the, and the like has sometimes then moved us too far away from, from quality cardiovascular exercise. And we know that the, the effects of um, just getting someone out of breath for 20 minutes a few times a week is incredible for some of those more systemic variables. I think sometimes those physios we have had, uh, we, we've kind of, taken to the strength feature because essentially it sort of still feeds some of that biomechanical bias that makes us think well yeah let's get the muscle stronger to support the joint and stuff and we end up sucked in closer towards the knee whereas of course some of the broader exercise um, interventions including cardiovascular would be something that you'd hope high value therapists would be really uh, delivering on and then of course becomes yeah well, like you say we'll talk about the low value because i think that's sometimes where the more obvious thing is is, is what what they what they shouldn't be doing uh, as much as anything yeah, and I know you you said you didn't want to tick boxes in the left and right hand column with regards to interventions that are good good and bad, but let's go there anyway. But you know, you use the word charlatan. There's other other words that could be used to describe some of the the activity that goes on, but it obviously creates some sense of codependence. It comes at cost. 
But what are what are some of the potential interventions that are being used on the lower end of the scale here that don't necessarily help patients benefit with regards to functional outcomes we're really trying to attain longer term? Yeah, the reason it sounded like I was maybe going to bottle it and not throw some interventions under the bus is, be, is mainly because, of course, the rationale and the logic underneath their application is, is the massive part of it. But it's when people are claiming mechanisms of effect and often inferring that to the patient that makes a massive difference. Now, there's some stuff that I just can't comprehend its need or utility. Like you, you, you could torture logic and find a route for it. But fundamentally, if someone is using something like therapeutic ultrasound on, on osteoarthritis now of any relevant chronicity, but would at all really, because usually that comes with them implying that this is something that is regenerative and, and, and pro-inflammatory or, you know, there's, there's a lot of what are known to be debunked mechanisms that are, are not of a relevance. And even if, you know, that there is a, a cry that at the right dosage, then it's going to have a, an effect on the tissues, then you're becoming tissue centric anyway. And you, you're, dis, you're disembodying this knee, especially when this is precious time with a therapist, is that that really just cannot be the biggest fish to fry. And so it is a, that is a flag for me, is any narrow electrotherapeutic intervention to a body part that isn't then you know, if I was to be really charitable, if you could nest that into a wider rehabilitation plan, it's still inefficient. There's an opportunity cost for the time you're spending with them that I just cannot comprehend that being useful. And then you've got things like your manual therapies in and around, say, an arthritic knees that you can you can so understand, for example, that only a few weeks ago, a niche circumstance presented itself where I felt like it was appropriate to have a patient in prone and just showing them that they could get some tibial rotation in flexion. Technically, a manual therapy intervention, but certainly not one where I'm saying, right, I'm going to mobilize your knee to try and instigate this rotation, to try and loosen your joint capsule or to, or to make some mechanically centric change to your knee. Instead, it was an, as part of a reassuring therapeutic touch from someone whose perception from what they've been Googling and another therapist they'd seen, a lot of what I do is sort of third, fourth, eighth opinion work, was to try to just sort of offer a physical challenge to some of the misnomers that I felt that they held. And that's why you wouldn't have me saying you shouldn't be doing manual therapy. Technically, I was doing that, wasn't I? It's the implication of what they're suggesting, the mechanism of therapeutic benefit is and what they're leaving the patient with. Because in this instance, they didn't then come back in saying, can you do that again? They weren't necessarily perceiving that that was anything curative or was essential to the care. It was something that we did. And then 10 minutes later, it meant that they were just hopefully a bit more reassured under my squat rack. Yeah, that's uh, really super helpful and a great, great explanation. Just digging again a little bit further into the interferential in particular um, and the ultrasound and those passive modalities that you spoke about that are not infrequently used in physio practice for people that have osteoarthritis. What would be the background underlying motivation on the part of the therapist to want to use those tools in that context? What's motivating them? As you said, there's an opportunity cost, but you know, obviously they're not thinking potentially about that at the time. Why, why are they doing that? Yeah, and you could bring acupuncture into the mixer a little bit on this. And some taping interventions, particularly, say, K-taping interventions or non-rigid tape. And there's a rationale that's out there, and it's very popular in not just physiotherapy, but in wider MSK care, that essentially people present with pain that is limiting function. Therefore, let's treat the pain. Let's, let's alleviate some of those symptoms as a means of then trying to 
develop their function following that. So that, that's usually the rationale is that they're doing whatever it is that can then make that person feel better. And also, depending on the context of which they're seen, that's a, a pretty, pretty potent thing. And, and sometimes, sometimes an essential part of it. Now, you still want to aspire to do that with any active and collaborative strategies. That's the thing that's sometimes seen as being like, but my, my version of it is so lacking in compassion that it's torture. Um, and that therefore there's some other couch somewhere else that the same person would present to, to get something that's really pleasant initially and then coax them into exercise, which of course, you know, we know again, and that, that the jury's not out on the data, that all these interventions are something that are, Pain relieving, yes, but transiently. And the work that I'm most uh, interested in that came out of the UK on this, which was really helpful, is some work that Toby Smith and his teams in Oxford did with regards to a really potent pain relieving modality that you would think would predispose you to increase your function because you've had such substantial pain relief would be a total knee replacement. And so it was interesting that even in Toby's uh, work that he'd looked at that under the logic that if you were to remove or alleviate the pain substantially, do people then engage with a more active lifestyle by proxy, right? So the pain is the thing don't want to draw too many broad conclusions from it. But as a general rule, when he noticed that that wasn't the case, and even when you account for some of the concerns that they might have over the the robustness of the prosthesis and things like that, we know that behavior is more complex than that. And we know that essentially pain isn't the center of that bullseye and that alleviating that pain, even if you could be really effective, even if these modalities did that as well as some of its proponents claim to, it wouldn't necessarily then aspire us to more active populations. And so that for me is often the rationale, but then I hope I've given a, a few different angles of reasons as to why I think that's misguided. Yeah, yeah. An extension of that potentially is coming back to how physio practices sometimes work um, and potentially clinician treating more than one person at a time, giving one person the ultrasound while they go off and start treatment on another. Are there any practice efficiency material benefits to be gained by using some of these passive modalities in a practice? Efficiency measured by what, I guess, is the thing, isn't it? It's it's certainly business efficient. You can delegate some of those technician-based treatments down. And I've known of that, you know, hopefully less and less, you know, maybe I'm being naive there. And I know this does vary cross-culturally. It varies dependent on, on nation. But yes, you do hear of a triaging therapist who then queues up a variety of modalities and then revisits them to conclude and and for me especially as you heard of my what i describe as being high value care is a he's a very a very somewhat intimate conversation that really gets into the detail of it it's something that increasingly is demedicalized and you need to have that attention you need to be truly listening to that patient and you're not going to do that from another room whilst concentrating on someone else and when i say concentrating i mean hearing a brief enough part of their story to think which recipe am I going to use today? You know, that is the, that is the opposite. It's protocolized. It's, it's certainly uh, on the, for the benefit of, of efficiency. Yes. For the practice and for the clinician, but certainly not for the patient. And I think above all else, if we were to, if we had the robust measures and we'll come to this later, no doubt with the robust measures to actually map proms and prems properly on, on this stuff, then it definitely it, it rid us of that style of care quite quickly because it's it's thoughtless and it's something that really is dated it, it, it persisting within 
a medical economy, you can so understand. That's why I said, depending on what measure, depends on its efficiency. Efficiency for what is the centre for me is getting people, getting people better and keeping them better and helping them sustain an active, healthy lifestyle. It's damn inefficient. But as far as business practices go, it's very attractive. Yeah, yeah and I, I think, as you've alluded to, most of the people out there who are actively working as physios are hopefully practising that higher value end of the care. But let's, let's just imagine for a second that, you know, I'm a patient. I've come in to see a physio. Um, a lot more of the care that I'm receiving is on the lower end of the scale that we've been describing rather than the higher end of the scale. And a patient recognizes that as such. So, you know, that they're, they're not transitioning towards a, a strength-based program. They're not being particularly given a lot of attentive personalized care. They're not, their physical activity is not being upgraded in a, in a meaningful way. And they're having a lot more of those passive modalities. What would you advocate that the patients say in that instance or, or basically just go somewhere else? I think that some of the challenge there is, is the, is the therapist that they're working with, like most, well-meaning and just misinformed. I don't excuse that as much as I maybe did 10 years ago after the proliferation of materials such as yours, mine and, and everyone else's online. It would be fascinating for a therapist to have a justification for having such blinkers on these days really but but again let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt and think that they're just misguided then a, a patient having a conversation with them saying i've heard maybe i could be lifting weights on on this knee or you know you could you could pose that gently depending on how the relationship is um but yeah generally if you're noticing that it's like all the big clangs that we've just gone through where they're being they're, they're sort of being they're being coddled they're being moved into another room for some sort of machine that those being they are being told to to, to rest it to let it settle and 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 do very little other than come into the practice tomorrow and and they're starting to see that all those alarm bells are going off then it's unlikely that any conversation is going to mean that the the therapist is going to go oh right yeah okay that qualifies you for our good stuff you know it's a very it'd be a very strange thing then that that would mean that that was even in their repertoire and they could think that way because it's a it's a bit of a heuristic in a sense is that they if they're in a sort of let's treat the symptoms then aspire for better function as if that is an, a necessary predisposition to the, the the good stuff then it's unlikely that they're going to change their mind in that moment um instead yeah you probably would want to try and seek out someone that is going to be more rehabilitation focused and also then probably where possible find a mechanism to feed that back you know it's a, be a bit savage in many ways for business for first day here of it for it to be a really scathing google review with references but if you were, were able to get in touch with the practice and explain especially let's say you went and saw someone else and then you know they were the ones that helped to unlock this problem with you then that's sometimes a lovely reflection that that, that practices can then have and it's definitely one of the things that i've um, I've had in my career is that you know done well I had that feedback from patients before that that we didn't hit it off for whatever reason and certainly remember a couple of times where you know I, I definitely was practicing in ways that I wouldn't now nothing quite as, as drastic as what we're describing but in ways that meant that early in my career it didn't quite work out they went and saw someone else they then thoughtfully reflected that back to me maybe six months later and I learned an awful lot from that it's rare it, but if it's done well it can be quite powerful but I don't think the patient should put it on themselves to try and reform our industry we should be doing that ourselves yeah and we'll get it hopefully get into that in a second but again just coming back to the patient here for a second before we get into that is there anything the patient can proactively do in seeking out a physio who might be providing more higher value rather than lower value care are there any qualities or descriptors that they can get at 
uh, without necessarily having to test it and try it and find out themselves? Well, when they're seeking it out, then yes. I think, unfortunately, and this varies nationally, um, of course, but there is no low-hanging fruit for them to grab. There's no kite-marking process that's credible. There's no top-down governance that regulates things appropriately, certainly in my country, at least. There's no trusted qualifications, you could think. You know, I'd love to be able to say, look, if they've got a credible master's in, in X, then, you know, unfortunately, that's just not where we're up to. And also, there's a very muted peer regulation system in which, you know, folk like you and and i'd even unfortunately you'd get lumped in with this now when this conversation is you'd would be considered heretics for for daring talk down even corners of a profession and so that's something that really stunts any development there so the patients haven't got an obvious go-to place for a register that they could differentiate low from high in any credible way so instead it falls to consumer due diligence and therefore what you'd want to do is if you go to someone's website, you're looking at their literature or you're hearing some of them or you're reading some of their reviews or whatever it might be, are they going to consider all of you? You know, are they going to disembody you? Are they going to just look you know, have their blinkers on at their knees? Are they just talking and listing about various different things they can do to you? Or are they going to be working with you? If they're bragging on their website about their technology, is that their squat rack or is that their electrotherapy? Is that their traction devices or is that their open gym space of which they are proud to, to deliver a 70% plus of their care. Those are the sorts of cues that you'd want to look for is then if you were to be, you think about what, what would be the care I'd like to receive if you were informed enough to do that and then go on to whatever it is that they, their advertising base, even you know, be that their website or their reviews, et cetera, and think, well, do I see that that I'm aspiring to represented in this and, and then act accordingly. And, and it pains me though, to say that that's what we're having to suggest. It shouldn't fall so heavily on the shoulders of patients. And, and it's one of the reasons that, that, one of the things that fuels my fire on the, on the policy level really is that it should be up to us to try and support people and create some sort of credible system uh, in that direction. But yeah, I hope that gives at least a few clues. Yeah, no, it's really, really helpful. So let's go there. Let's go to, you know, the system's broken, let's say. How do we fix that system to make sure that patients don't necessarily have to go fishing so hard for themselves? How do we improve quality of healthcare professional and the delivery of care that they're dishing out? I'm going to go bottom up in terms of I'm going to go sort of social and societal, then up to, say, regulatory stuff, because I think that that would be, I'll be honest, that would be my preference you know i feel like if we had a better public and professional conversation about some of this stuff then you're not going to necessarily need anything especially heavy-handed in terms of regulation and higher governance um, i think that responsibility should be distributed across that spectrum and therefore i'd start with a more open dialogue about factors such such as this uh, making sure that then we puncture what i've called professional correctness this sense of politeness that comes from the fact that you know jack likes to use rehabilitation I like to use manual therapy and imply that that then corrects people's joint position. Who are we to judge? Well, the evidence judges you, the patients judge you. We unfortunately need to make better progress than that. That's, that's a wishy-washiness and politeness of pseudo-professionalism to me when the fact that these patients then might be, and it sounds dramatic, but suffering under the hands of low-value care and our systems under the strain of low-value care and us as, even, you know, as, as taxpayers under public health you know, we need to start thinking about that in a more accountable way. Now, that doesn't mean confrontation uh, in, a, in a really excessive way, in, in an unprofessional way, but it's certainly something that a more open dialogue whereby we can have that. And as I've mentioned too many times, probably even on this podcast, get all the cards on the table and to understand a good analysis, you know, practice what we preach, 
instead of it being clinical diagnostics, let's do a professional diagnostic, an industry diagnostic and say, right, what is the state of play? What does the data inform? What's our subjective take on the matter? Let's make sure that Jack's not just flexing his own biases to promote his think tank. You know, let's make sure that everything is then appropriately analyzed. And then I think that would go an awful long way. It would also then lead to more accessible training at all levels, undergraduate, postgraduate. So the purposes of individual reform and changing those professional boundaries that oftentimes people feel compromised about letting people in. You know, I think most patients out there will probably be surprised that most healthcare professionals who are practicing out there, physios included, we're not regularly audited. No one really knows what we're doing in our individual practice. How do we go about changing that environment, that that culture whereby many people feel protected um, and we can feel confident about auditing one another's practice, about revealing what's actually going on behind the closed doors and not feeling ashamed or confrontational when we do get threatened in that context? That's a question that gets posed at least every third team meeting we have because essentially you've got so many different angles to whether or not people even in my team that feel like they've kind of given up on whether or not we can have that mature conversation amongst ourselves. And therefore, unfortunately, we need to aspire for something that's going to then mandate an audit frequency and style and standard that we need to go for, which of course we can come to what my suggestions would be on that level. But I think that the culture shift that you're describing we need is something that starts with a humility of those with a level of expertise and a public platform to suggest so. So people that are then willing to broadcast the fact that they have had the, the the land has moved from under them several times in their career. The fact that their name's in lights and they're someone that's a proponent of, of various different parts and styles of care, but they accept that a reasoning-based model leaves us with a load more variables and a load more question marks uh, than we'd like. And that fundamentally that uh, shifts in practice and, and the, the young nature of what MSK practice is, you know, the fact that, that anyone speaking in absolutes is clearly taking a significant punt when the jury's out on a lot of this stuff. So there's just that base humility that then hopefully the, the leaders in our profession can share that, but then also backfill that in that instability and that insecurity so that it doesn't demoralize those coming through and those that are having to deliver care so they don't end up too vague is to mentor them carefully and sensibly and to have your know, joint assessments and shadowing and to not feel like that your supervisor or or even just your colleague being in the cubicle or clinic room with you is necessarily as a means of tutting and ticking a, a checkbox or a sheet or a judgment it's support and and that culture shift comes from the fact that if we can stop fingers wagging, because essentially who on earth would be wagging their fingers? You know, if I was to be shadowing any given clinician, um, you, you want to be making sure that, of course, there's no spirit of judgment. There's a spirit of support. And that is something that, yeah, on an individual basis, you need to reward that amongst your amongst your staff. You need to observe it when it happens. You need to recognize that if someone is tutting and wagging fingers, then God, they've got to have good reason for doing so. And usually in our industry, if it's not on safety related grounds, then that's where you need to have that conversation about, well, who are you to judge? And is there, a, is there actually a root or a rationale if you'd have given it chance as to why they're maybe strapping that particular knee, why that orthotic device is actually appropriate in this instance? Those are, are red flags for some people. When fundamentally, if you unpick that reasoning, it's a, a completely reasonable intervention that we've seen bear out in some of the literature. But the cultural support needs to, needs to go that far, really, into, into mentorship. And it, will that emerge on its own? 
that's the fascinating question. I hope so. But I, I said that five years ago, uh, quite publicly, I said I'd hope so. And then I get challenged quite frequently about that not moving on fast enough to, to protect patients in such a way that then some of my colleagues who they, they want us to make a case for more regulatory framework. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm struggling with my side of that argument these days because it's not really shifting as quickly. And, and, uh, and, and also me and others face still an onslaught of suggestion that our critique is heavy handed when we're being as, as gentle as we possibly can. You sound like you're carrying it off in a very diplomatic way. I must admit, I'd probably be a lot blunter than you were. But what levers and incentives would there be for that type of cultural shift to occur? Because I don't think passive change is likely to occur. So what's going to motivate clinicians to have that cultural shift? I'm personally someone that really, I'm as into carrots and sticks, really. I I really struggle to I get frustrated sometimes by people that are too into one or the other, really. I, I, I'm, into, I'm into both, really. There should be some consequence and there should be some reward. Some people, and I've been persuaded that diplomatically, you talk more of carrots than sticks, and that's fine. But in terms of carrots, then, let's go there first, is that you would, you would try to create a system in which it then rewards and appropriately credentials people for consistent delivery of this high-value care. So if we were to get on top of, say, uh, measuring, credibly measuring PROMs and PREMs and uncoupling that from therapists, so actually looking at outcomes and experience measures that then weren't, you couldn't cook the books, you're not looking over someone's shoulder as they're filling in a PSFS score, um, you are you know, creating a, a data set then that can actually inform the experiences and outcomes of your patients over a time frame that's sensible rather than a few minutes or weeks. And then you use that as a means of then supporting someone as, as, as part of their, their mentorship and their supervision. And, and therefore, you've getting, you're getting some of the data coming to bear. You're getting some of the experiences of the patients. You're getting the way in which they're engaging with their education. You're protecting some of their time so that they're not under the cosh of ever more complex and chronic pathology all the time in such a way that they're seeing 15 patients today, they can't even, not got time to reflect on the cases, never mind think about their own development and their own learning needs. So there's those sort of system changes. A lot of the principles we speak of, of course, are universal, but when it comes to, say, aspiring to change governance structures, if we were too general on that on a world level, you'd just get nowhere. So sometimes we've got to be really particular and speak to different policies and laws even that would need changing to, ch- to change practice. But in, in in the UK, we have a chartered society that, that is a near monopoly on, on physiotherapy registration as a means of it's the easiest and simplest way to, to be a trade union and an insurer. Now, I'm not calling them on this, but essentially just because as an undergraduate, you qualify into and just pay your trade union 30 quid a month and you're then chartered, yet that word culturally in the UK for chartered accountancy, chartered surveyors, chartered solicitors, chartered lawyers is a postgraduate qualification and peer review process to a panel that then is a known step. The difference between an accountant and a chartered accountant, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's perfectly credible, but I'm just meaning that there is a relevant step there that then we can we can quibble as to how justified the, the, that, that level is. So to, to have co-opted that language as chartered physiotherapists, and therefore the, the only distinction between a chartered physiotherapist and an uncharted physiotherapist, or, or just a, a physiotherapist, is that the chartered physiotherapist pays his trade union 30 quid and then obliges by a code of conduct, essentially, rather than anything else, is, is fascinating to me. It's a, it's a misuse of language. But regardless of it being the complexities of a royal charter in the UK, 
what I'm suggesting is that if you can create some sort of pathway, which you know medics have had for many years and, and increasingly nurses staff in the UK, and, and we're aspiring to a process in which you can then credential someone po- as a postgraduate that then has met credible standards, you don't have to be called chart. And I'm not wedded to that, but I'm just using it as an example of saying that that for me would be a really good carrot that would then a stick would be the obvious thing would emerge because those that weren't would be aspiring to be. Otherwise, they would suffer some social consequence from patients, from their peers, and and get chartered would be something that would be really relevant. So that's me speaking to the to the carrots as a diplomat. <laughs> well, you're still doing a great job of being very diplomatic there, Jack. But <laughs> I mean, on, on that topic of potential continued professional development and training that it would occur following any degree that they might do at university. I mean, a lot of professional colleges around the world do continue to do that, whereby a person necessarily needs to get a certain number of points, if you want to call it that, every year so that they are maintaining a certain level of professional standard. To me, again, that probably doesn't necessarily guarantee that that person's necessarily going to practice according to what should be occurring as far as either best evidence or best practice is concerned. Just coming back a second, though, before we get into that, you were talking a little bit about carrots and getting people to to measure outcomes and measure a person's experience through through practice as well what what if any efforts are being made in the physiotherapy community around payment reform most most medical practice uh, throughout the world is very much a fee-for-service system so you know you go along you get a certain intervention and the clinician gets paid irrespective of how well that person does so there's really no fee for quality obviously there's a lot of payment reform happening, but what could happen in the world of physiotherapy to enhance quality uh, that might be incentivized according to reimbursement? Is there any way that that can happen? I think um, it'd be very difficult to, unless we can crack this nut that is the prom and prem piece, which is something that I, you know, I won't go into too much detail. It'd be boring, but we are really working on that as a think tank to create a platform that would be then really user-friendly to try and do that. Because I think with a, with a large data set that then helped us to, instead of it being, you know, what do Jack and David think about this care delivery? You know, if we were reading someone's clinical notes and look at the general or interview the patient 12 months after they'd had an episode of care, and we were to assess that, then the subjectivity that's baked into that as well as the accusations of, of bias the frustrations that many have with things like nice guidance etc it'd just be it'd be such a complex conversation and because you know some of those concerns would be valid of course so instead if we can if we can try to make sure that that data collection as well as the experience collection of, of some sort where we were to marry those things up and understand then that it's not just our take on the matter. It's something that what, what delivers quality and efficient healthcare for the goals that we all aspire to, which is people with, in this instance, less pain, more function. Um, we can even go as far as to say sort of um, happiness for want of a better metric with regards to you know life, uh, life years, whatever decision you make on, on what your outcome would be. That's obviously a, more of a, a research question. But I think that without that, I really struggle to comprehend how you could incentivize through payment system for me it's a a fascinating thing that's emergent from a liberal system you know there's a relativism that's kind of baked into us that who are we to judge and and i'm into that in many ways many walks of life so i'm not going to criticize him wholeheartedly but but fundamentally in this instance you know we need to get over a sense of, of of moral relativism when there's when there's something that is there's obviously consequences that we're watching play out both in the data our experience in clinic we're seeing unwarranted variation of 
of scales and standards that just can't clearly be tolerated for various reasons. Therefore, someone's got to step up and say, it's not going to, it can't be tightly parameterized, but if you're not going to say good and bad, you're going to say better or worse. We've got to start having that and, and start stepping up because, you know, it's, it's not fair to not do. And so I, I'm really sorry to not have an answer for the payment thing, but I invite you to give me some clues as to what, how it could work without. But if we don't get the measurement piece right, I struggle to see how we can then differentially charge based on care delivery. So again, you know, uh, this is where I might not have thought hard enough in that direction. Yeah, no, it's something that we're working along a little bit. So we do quite a bit of work in the implementation of osteoarthritis programs internationally through a program called Joint Effort. Mm. And as part of that, we're looking at trying to standardize uh, outcome measures that might get used in clinical practice, not necessarily just research studies, that would be hopefully simple and easy to use in clinical practice, not burdensome either to the health professional or the patient, but would simply allow the assessment of standardized clinical outcomes over, over time and do that on mass. Um, and as you suggest, not do it as an acute setting, but do it particularly in the context of osteoarthritis where you evaluate, evaluate that over time. For us, that's mainly in part so that we can actually compare between programs and see what outcomes are occurring between different programs in an effort to try to enhance quality and improve quality between those programs where some may or may not be performing as well as others, obviously cognizant of the variation in the different types of patients that may present and the contributions that they might make. But out, outside of that, I mean, ultimately, it would be great to see that payers, uh, insurers, health systems, whoever they may be, might want to look at data that's coming from those programs uh, and pay based upon the quality of care that's actually being delivered based on outcomes that are measured. Because as you, as you suggest, individual quality statements that people might make over individual practitioners are really, really hard to base any payment upon. But if you've got a patient whose quality of life is measurably different to another person's quality of life, and, and you can see that and place a value on it, then there should be a value that um, a healthcare system and a payer may, may or may not be able to make according to that. So it's a, it's a work in play. I'm not necessarily suggesting it's finalized. I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be palatable for a lot of people. But I think if, if we continue the current system whereby you can go and pay you know, someone an, a factor of 10 times more for the same haircut that's of poorer quality, it doesn't make any sense. So I think we need to come up with some useful measure that will allow us to assess quality uh, and potentially start thinking about payment according to that rather than just fee-for-service? I think that obviously, you know, I'm, I'm so supportive of that. And if there's anything I can do or we can do to promote work such as that, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I think that I uh, admittedly thought a few years back that the pressure on payers would be so significant that they would start caring about care style you know care quality and unfortunately though it did i did turn out in the uk context to be a bit naive and it is a different context granted with our national health service and, and truly truly public medicine in in that sense but the payers in the private system were just admittedly and the bit merely mouthed saying that they would invite prom and prem data which one of the reasons why you'd then need to confront them with that but Independent of it, I did think that, well, it's in your best interest to get the quality up so you can get more efficiency. Just speak to their bottom line. 
But it turned out that fundamentally, one of the big draws into their systems was the sense that the patients aren't unfortunately that well informed and therefore to be to be pandered to and to be pampered and for therapy to look like a spa, there's no bottom line cost to them because that draws people into bolstering their packages on insurance. So I was a bit naive in that direction. So that's one of the reasons why I, I'm kind of all in on the sort of prom and prem conversation because I think that that's the sort of thing that might persuade them because at the moment it's in their interest for there to not be crisp lines between spas and therapy or between sort of what would be pandering care and rehabilitation centered care and, and, and getting people to participate in their own health is something that is famously less less sexy and less trendy and in areas where they've made progress in making it a bit more sexy and trendy they've kind of got carried away on fitness influencers and crossfit and, and scantily clad and they got you know it's like just as we thought we were going to start having rehab facilities that were demedicalized it's kind of gone a bit far the other way in some instances as the data is showing us so you know I, I applaud what you're talking about and I really I really want that to work uh, but but similarly it's a fascinating amount of forces at play that are com- compromising it, which is one of the reasons why I'm forever saying, let's let's talk about it. Let's drag that into public. Yeah, sunlight is the best disinfectant, whatever cliche I might use for that. <laughs> so you're a Donald Trump fan as well. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning a lot here. Outside of payment reform, though, what else can we do to shift clinical practice away from lower value care to higher value care? A while ago, you were starting to go and talking about undergraduate, postgraduate education, but I don't know whether you want to expand on other areas that we could enhance here. Yeah, that's something that I said about training, accessible training at all levels. And then you quite rightly brought us to the conversation we've just had. And, and that, for me, would naturally, you can't really solve it without then giving people access to what might change their mind or hopefully persuade them. You know, that's the thing. It sounds like both of us are in for in the persuasion game um, rather than sort of mandating it. And therefore you're changing a curricula and a syllabus within say undergraduate programs of various different MSK disciplines is all, all well and good, but the pressure on those courses, especially because they're not MSK centric courses often, you know, they've got to visit various different things and rightly so means that you then end up being, you're taking away some of the recipe based tools or intervention tools and recipes that they'd use them in that therefore mean that graduates end up feeling really exposed by the realities of practice and the patient that sits out across from them that, that has needs that they don't feel necessarily as equipped to serve as we maybe did, although we were deluded by what we could do. You know, it's like a massive challenge. So therefore, the, the big thing for me is we need to try and make sure that we nurture those, those departmental experiential learning roles whereby junior therapists can be truly supported. And I know I spoke to sort of the diary management that that would bring, you know, they're making sure they're not under the cosh of, uh, you know, just let's throw them in the middle of the sea and hope that they swim type approaches. But similarly, let's not pretend that they need four sets of armbands. Um, and so... You've got to find that that ground, which is sort of supportive learning. You've got to try and keep the credible senior clinicians in those posts and in practice. So in the UK, we've got an interesting challenge at the moment where uh, many clinicians, myself included when I was in the health system, getting drawn into tighter and tighter, narrower and narrower advanced practice roles, which end up being more triage than rehab, right? So those senior clinicians aren't doing the doing. They're also then not a wall away from a junior therapist that wants that second opinion. So you're putting those barriers up. 
that concerns me on a workforce level. Um, but that for me is integrated into the education. So when people talk about education, sometimes they just, everyone wants the syllabus to look like their favorite thing. And I really try and not be that guy. Instead, it's sort of the importance of it is what happens with those graduates, those early years professionals that we can then bring through and help them to not succumb the pressure would make them do one of two things. They either are scared and burnt out because fundamentally they are completely without, without the skill set to really serve the population. They feel they put, you know, socially awkward situations where they're just letting people down and they will go and do better things. We are not in a professional sense. We are not well remunerated enough for people to just sweat that out. Right. They'll, they'll, they'll honestly go and earn as much if not more money elsewhere and take their skills and we will lose them because they'll burn out. Or they start blagging. They start having to then go towards some of those easier but wrong answers because what else are they going to do? And they've probably got fellow graduates and peers and, and they're witnessing people potentially earning good money, dishing out what they would rather not do, but at least they're surviving and at least they sleep at night easier than they shouldn't, but they do. And that for me is where when I talk of education, I definitely talk about all years forever learning type stuff and, and that. I would say that, wouldn't I, as a digital educator, as someone that produces educational material, I think it's as, as accessible as it ever has been. And it's, and it's increasingly conversational and it's increasingly humble. It's not recipes because we haven't got them. It's not because we're bottling it. It's because we're, we're having to err on the side of rather than be devout and explicit. And, uh, and I think that that's something we just need to, to get as heads around. So obviously part of it's education, part of it's talking to these people and giving giving them a, a suite or a set of options that hopefully creates some confidence for them. Yeah. Are there other ways that we can support younger people, particularly as they're emerging into the profession, to ensure that they don't burn out, that they're given the right environment to grow, to develop, that they don't feel threatened by the, the volume of patients that sit, sit in front of them? I think one of the, the best ways of doing that, in my opinion, is to utilize the varied skill set they have that's non-clinical or adjacent to clinical with regards to, say, digital tools. You know, these are these are increasing digital natives. They understand some of the interesting market forces that can influence people's health. They understand things like social media and, and other technologies that can do that. And therefore, turning them into appropriate preventative public health advocates or educationalists, you know, why why wouldn't a, a junior's role in part B to go to the local school? Why are we not integrating into leisure centres? You know, in, in this country, we've got even some, some lifeguards that are also personal trainers that then supervise some of some of the self-serving hydrotherapy style sessions where someone's got a waterproof tablet and they're doing some rehab. Why are therapists and other MSK professionals, including into our, into our medical colleagues, why are we not able to integrate that and to demedicalize some of this stuff? That's how you vary those roles without it being something that's seen as a business inefficiency for the fact that you're not just commoditizing their labor in such a narrow way that think, right, well, we've got 10 hours in this workday. How many patients can they see? It's just such a, it's, it's, it's daft on so many different levels, but it takes for that creativity that I've just described and playing a bit of a long game and also listening to them. What is it they want to be doing? What do they want to be learning? Right. Some people would, would be mortified at the idea of saying, well, on Wednesday at 12 o'clock, you're going you're gonna to do a live stream. Like, you're joking. Whereas some would just be, can't believe that they're being paid for it. Whereas others would be loving to go and work on some standard operating procedures at the lo local leisure centre to make it more accessible. So it's not a place for fit people. It's a place to get well. They would love to do that and work those policy documents up. And so 
that's the sort of job crafting that we need to think about and think about doing across different sectors. And it also speaks funnily enough to right at the start of this podcast, I admitted as to why I ended up having to go into innovative entrepreneurship or to, to create things under my own moniker and banner and build my own team is in part because the system really struggles to flex in that direction. And don't get me wrong, plenty of my ideas have either not come off or, or, or are wrong or could still have been wrong or could still be wrong, of course. But it's just that the ability to try some of that stuff and the ability to use those sorts of innovations to, to de-risk it on our emergent junior population of, of therapists is what if we don't? That's, that for me is a, a crazy thing for us to be risking right now um, because the demand on our services is huge. So how are we going to serve them? How are we going to look after them? Now are we going to stop these therapists just saying, sod this, I'll go and sell cars. I'll go and work at the local shop. Unfortunately, these are, these are talented people that could certainly go and earn a, a good living elsewhere and, and, and probably just become, it could just be a, be a hobbyist um, in, in health if they wanted to and still get that justification if we don't look after them. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I mean, I think there are so many different ways of achieving improvements in pain and function uh, that don't necessarily involve one-to-one consultation and, and burning uh, health professionals out. Yeah, and whether that be uh, group sessions in a, in a pool, in a gym, having different types of health professionals engaged in their care, so it's not necessarily just, just one-to-one. I think if we're looking at bundles of care and packages of delivery, um, and measuring outcome and hopefully seeing improvements in that. Hopefully there will also be some merits and benefits seen by the professionals delivering the care. Jack, anything more that you wanted to say about shifting towards higher value care? I think we've covered we've covered most of it and certainly um, at least to that big picture view. I think that when we're trying to identify what we're meaning by high value and low value, then I think we need to accept and acknowledge the fact that that is so conveniently vague and that philosophically sometimes when we're scrutinizing what we're meaning by things and trying to define terms, et cetera, it's really healthy for us to make sure that we don't overgeneralize and we don't just start cooking the books based on our own persuasions and biases. Now, the only way I know to correct for that in these sorts of instances is to, is to talk it out and to, to learn from each other and to come at things with a true open mind. And, and I think that then the really credible accusation that I face when talking about, say, high value, low value is just that. It's like on whose terms, based on what, based on what presuppositions, what are your priors? And I hear that. And I respect that. And I think that if we were dismissive of it and just say, well, we know it when we, you know, when we, uh, when we see it. You might have heard about, uh, have you heard of the pornography test? Essentially, you just, you don't know whether it's, you know, you, you just know it when you see it. It's this idea that essentially it's something that's so confrontational, so explicit, you kind of get it. And some people want to do that with high value, low value. It's just like, well, if you pay enough attention to the evidence, to the literature, to the wider professional conversation, you kind of know what it looks like and what it doesn't. I just can't. That that doesn't work. It just is not. It's not right. It's not thorough, and it's also the sort of ideological reasoning that's got us in this mess in the first place. So essentially, I think that I challenge all of those that are aspiring and rightly so to high value care to not be taking low hanging fruit. Right? Do the hard, go the hard yards, unpack your arguments, scrutinize your own thinking, try to be as crisp as you can, take a scalpel out when you need to be particular rather than just wielding a sledgehammer all the time. But admittedly, I say in this podcast, we've kind of gone big picture and I'm pleased we have done. Uh, I hope I've, I've made a case for it. And obviously it's, it's an introduction to various more 
work that we've done and, and work that we're trying to uh, achieve on this very topic, which sometimes is big picture, sometimes it's getting the microscope out. Uh, but that knowing what lens to put on things is, is really important. And I, and I want to assure your listeners that, that that level of detail where required is, is there amongst me and my colleagues. But then also, if we lose track of that big picture vision and understand some of the workforce and public health related variables and, and uh, de-risking people's future, as we, as we talked about, preventative medicine, if we lose that, then what we're doing, we'll end up navel gazing once again, just in a slightly different angle. And we love doing that anyway, don't we? <laughs> but Jack, are there any resources that you'd like to point people towards? Uh, or if our listeners are particularly wanting to hear, hear more from you, any, anything that you want to point them in the direction of? We have some great OA resources at rheumatology.physio that are, that are very new. That is part of Jack March's project. And so whilst not rheumatological, of course, it's part of a, a, group, of, a group of resources that we have. Um, on OA now that can help people, both patients and therapists, to aspire to know more in that direction. We have the Physio Matters podcast and its associated broadcasts, which is, we were arrogant enough to print some publicity stickers a few years ago, which we just said very Googleable on them because we're quite confident now you'll find us. So find the Physio Matters podcast and Physio Matters now has a, has a wider project of lots of video materials and a subscription service that all the videos from things like Therapy Live and our debates and, and things like that are all available now for download. MSK Reform is our think tank, and certainly we've had a, a huge international response to it, even though some of the governance-related stuff is kind of really quite UK-centric. The principles are really universal, and we've witnessed movements in various different nations emerge in a similar format, where a community of practice truly emerges from the grassroots uh, and, and starts to initiate processes of change and are willing to stake out what they mean by clinical excellence or high value and call it what you will. So I would, I would end up plugging my own stuff. I think that increasingly NICE are doing some brilliant work. One of the associate directors of MSK Reform is a lady called Dr. Emma Salt, and she's doing knowledge, knowledge translation summaries of MSK NICE documents that acknowledge the accusation that sometimes there's a what, what sometimes might seem as if uh, a narrow empiricism, which I think is an unfair accusation, but they've then gone at, they've been at pains to try to make that as clinically applicable and unpack those arguments. So I would say for those that maybe feel that the nice stuff maybe sometimes feels a little bit dry, go and have a little look again at some of the clinical knowledge documents that they've been producing, because I think that that's some, that's some really good work in translating this MSK piece. And obviously it's a, quite an, an OA focus to some of that work as well. Yeah, no, great set of resources that hopefully people get a lot more information from. Now, just a, a couple of quick rapid fire round, um, and then I'll get into a couple of couple of closing questions. Favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption. It's a great movie. One of my favorites as well. Favorite, favorite book? The Gruffalo. Dog or cat person? Dog. Favorite quote? He who knows only his side of the case knows little of that is a John Stuart Mill quote that uh, I repeat far too much. Favourite food? Burgers. I'm one of those boring people that like can't help himself but get the burger on the menu at a, at a pub. So, yeah, definitely burgers. It's not a very English thing, is it? <laughs> no, not really. It's something that would match my accent, shouldn't I? But no, burgers. Do you have a bad habit? I'm, I'm, I'm overcoming it. I'm nearly there, but I've, I've been a nail biter all my life. Well, you've done very well. I don't think I've seen you chew your nails the whole time I've been talking to you. <laughs> Where would you next like to go on holiday? Easy answer would be like anywhere, wouldn't it, right now? I will say 
where would I like to go? Where would I be going this autumn if it wasn't for the situation we found ourselves in? Is Sydney. One of my best friends is getting married in Sydney in October. And so I'm just absolutely gutted that I can't come over there. Um, I have visited Sydney briefly once before. and certainly not seen enough of it. Um, and so that, I will say, is, uh, is my centre of, centre of that. Oh, well, if you do ever end up coming down at some point, hopefully post-COVID, uh, let us know. It'd be great to catch up. Now, what superpower would you have? I would want to fly. I can't see any, anything better than that. It'd be incredible. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Richard Feynman. And what would you do if money wasn't an issue? Oh, boring answer to this, but it's true. I would just lean further into the nonprofit and policy-related stuff that we do. Um, I, I get frustrated at the fact that the timing of it, COVID, COVID brought um, a variety of challenges, one of which meant that I had to save our enterprises in various different ways and had to flex into some of our other more obvious business stuff and so it means that i've been drawn thinner on the on what i think is the the fun stuff the the real reformative policy agenda so i would admittedly if money wasn't an object i'd be that guy even more i'd be wearing that hat as i mentioned earlier <laughs> a great answer i'm really really pleased that you continue to do that now jack why do you do what you do what motivates you i, I can't believe my luck that the thing that I happen to train in is something that the evidence is so well supportive of in terms of rehabilitation and functionally aspiring people to be better and to work with them to do that. I just can't believe my luck. And so that for me is, is why I do it is because I see it as being such a hugely valuable resource for society. If we can proliferate the message and also then deliver a rehabilitation focus, there are so many analogies and proxies as well to wider society in terms of how that could work. You know, it's something that doesn't have to just be clinically focused. I'm always forever telling my team and my staff and the network generally that, a thorough examination and evaluation followed by tailored bespoke solutions we apply that to politics so we, we definitely are in a situation where the things that we've trained in the specialism that we've developed and the vagueness that surrounds it is something that i think is creating some really powerful advocates for for quality healthcare and beyond and so why i do what i do is because i just really believe that we're onto something with it and that we can count we're well equipped to counter some of the nonsense that's going on in our industry in the wider healthcare and then beyond agreed and hopefully you don't step into boris's shoes anytime soon and you continue to do what you're currently doing <laughs> is, is there any one piece of advice knowledge wisdom you'd like to give to people out there with osteoarthritis in closing um, yeah don't settle I think one of the things that uh, it pains me is that there's so much compromising that goes on. There's, people are so surprised at what they can do with their body despite these issues. Um, if given the right support and the right training and the right high-value care, I would say. And so therefore, yeah, please don't compromise. I mean, that sounds a bit dramatic if someone's like 98% there and doing brilliantly and they're then taking my advice and they're chomping at the bit unrealistically. That's the downside. But as a general rule, if people feel like they've not really had the, you know, they don't recognize the description of what we've talked about for their care and they feel like they've had to compromise or they're on the cusp of whether or not they need to give up climbing stairs, for example, you know, these things that people do naturally compromise on because they perceive that their body is giving up on them like that, then please do you know you'd be surprised at what you can achieve it is, it is fascinating both what the clinical practice experience but also the data is showing as we can achieve together with the right care superb advice jack really loved having a chance to have a chat to you i, I learned a lot uh, obviously we bounce a few things off one another and hopefully we'll have a chance to do that in sydney sometime soon but really thank you so much yeah absolutely it's been great thanks a lot so in closing 
I'm hoping that you found that information helpful for people who obviously have osteoarthritis who are out there trying to discern what is higher value versus lower value care. We know that there's tremendous variation. We know that you have choice about where you go to receive care. And hopefully in doing so, some of that choice is driven by the value of care that is received. We also hope for those who got to the end of the show that you had an opportunity to think about ways that we might be able to improve the system, whether that be through payment-based or other types of reforms. These are all incredibly helpful as we try to reduce the variation in care that is occurring in our community and try to improve the quality of care that's being delivered for people who have osteoarthritis. As always, if you have questions, please send them in. We really enjoy hopefully answering some of them. And in addition, really enjoy the opportunity to have a chance to speak with you. Thanks for your ongoing support. And I really look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.